ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. They've won the ball back Australia here. Played four now towards Sam Kerr. Kerr over the halfway line. Faced up by Millie Bright. Kerr still racing forward. Edge of the box. Sam Kerr shoots right-footed. What a strike! What a goal from Sam Kerr! It was a Matilda's where-were-you-when moment. Sam Kerr electrifying the nation in a World Cup semi-final. And look, it didn't have the ending Australians wanted that game, but it was meant to be part of a new beginning. This week, Sam and the Tillies band are getting back together for the first time since that iconic tournament run. We're going from where were you when to where are they now? What's changed for the Matildas and football and women's sport? What hasn't? I'm Patrick Stack. This is ABC Sport Daily. Sam Lewis is a football writer with ABC Sports. Sam, the Matildas have returned for the Paris Olympic qualifiers, and it's the first time they've been back since the World Cup. It's a good moment to take stock of how the tournament that was meant to change everything has or hasn't changed some things. That idea is broad, so we're going to pick through it piece by piece. Let's start with the Tillies as an entity. How have things changed for them? Yeah, look, it's a great question. Um, As you mentioned, they're back on home soil for the first time since the World Cup. And we've already seen that there's a huge appetite over in Perth for these three Olympic qualifying games, uh, especially the second game against the Philippines. It had to be moved to a bigger stadium in order to accommodate the overwhelming demand for tickets. Uh, The last time they were playing in Perth back in 2018, the crowd figure, I think, was just a smidge over 7,500 people. And the first and third games are expected to get at least 20,000, with the second potentially being a sellout crowd of 60,000. It's been incredible post-World Cup. I think Australia's really gotten on board with us and it's really nice to see, you know, the crowds almost being sold out for our games. Obviously, we haven't played here in such a long time. It's amazing, right? Like, just a couple of years and this World Cup in between has completely catapulted the Matildas to this kind of superstar status, which is really, really exciting. Um, and I think it's also like it's a it's a really good opportunity for uh, football as a sport more generally in Australia to kind of rekindle the energy that the World Cup sparked because it's been just over two months now since that tournament happened. And I was watching uh, last night a, a, a video from the Women's World Cup social media t- uh, account of the penalty shootout against France. And I was like immediately transported back to that moment and to the feeling of the entire nation being so enraptured by this team. The whistle blows. Courtney Vine for the semi-finals. She scores! She pulls away! Australia have won! And it feels like that's kind of ebbed away a little bit in the in the sort of last couple of months. So hopefully these qualifiers will rekindle that spark and get people really interested again. Let's talk about this sort of group from an individual standpoint. I mean, a World Cup can be seen as a silver bullet for players' careers. You know, Has that been the case for these women, the way they've been perceived and appreciated on a global stage since the tournament? Yeah, I think it has in some cases. Uh, one of the best examples of that potentially is Mary Fowler, who is currently signed with Manchester City over in England. Before the World Cup, she was largely a bench player. She came off the bench a couple of times, did a couple of things here or there. But since returning and starting the season, she has been a mainstay in the starting 11 and has been absolutely killing it. Fowler, left footy crosses a good one. Sure! You know what happens next. Angle Dahl to Fowler, cross comes in, heads go up, that's 4-0. 
Fowler with another assist. She's pretty much undroppable at this point, of course, because we saw how good she was during the World Cup. There have been a couple of other players as well who've managed some big moves over to uh, some big clubs in Europe. Claire Hunt, for example, one of the breakout stars of the Matildas over the last year, moved from the Western Sydney Wanderers to Paris Saint-Germain in France uh, and was thrown in the deep end quite unexpectedly, um, being chucked on in a Champions League game when she had only been there for about two weeks and uh, did really well. But there are some players who've signed for clubs over there who haven't quite got their feet under the desk yet. Uh, Cara Cooney-Cross is a good example. She signed for Arsenal alongside, which is with Caitlin Ford and Steph Catley over there. It's nice to have another Aussie around. It feels a little bit more like home the more that we gather. So yeah, I think people are calling it Ozenal because there's so many of us there. But she hasn't really played very much. Uh, she's only made one appearance for them off the bench and hasn't really been able to crack into the side. Uh, and Tegan Micah as well, the young goalkeeper, she didn't make an appearance during the World Cup, but she signed for Liverpool uh, and hasn't really played very much either. So kind of depends on the on the player, depends on the club that they're at, the circumstances of their team, the competitions that they're playing in, lots of different things. But I do think that the World Cup was a really important shop front for the Matildas um, and making them really visible to these big clubs overseas. And it's great to see that some of them have taken that opportunity and have um, taken themselves off to a place where hopefully they're going to get better and better. Charles, first time ball in. Ah! She missed an earlier chance. Very rare that she misses more than one. And she continues this exceptional record against West Ham. 11 goals now. For some of those players, things have changed forever. And I think we all felt the Matildas brand had changed forever for the better. But the question was, would and could that success translate to clubland and the A-League women's? What are we seeing? Absolutely. Uh, the the A-League women's season kicked off uh, just two weeks ago. And in the first round, we had not only the biggest ever standalone crowd for an A-League women's game, just over 11,000 people for the Sydney Derby between Sydney FC and Western Sydney Wanderers, but the biggest ever round one total crowd, which was just over 25,000 people. So that in itself is a pretty good evidence that there is ongoing appetite for women's football. And of course, it's helped by the fact that there are are a couple of Matilda's players who have signed for A-League women's clubs, the most notable perhaps being Courtney Vine at Sydney FC. She's basically the face of the league now after sort of being a bit of a minnow over the last couple of years. Kruger plays it to Vine. Vine with half a pitch to work with. Plays the early ball. Words. Vine continues the run through the middle. The crowd rises. Courtney Vine on the tight angle. Puts it into the middle and Kruger just won. And wasn't the crowd riding every touch of the ball there? We've got Lydia Williams down at Melbourne Victory alongside Elise Kellon-Knight and uh, Emily Gilnick, who are sort of on the fringes. We've got Tamika Yallop at Brisbane. You know, we've got a number of really big players, Kai Simon at Central Coast Mariners, who have come back in part because they know that this is a really significant season for Australian women's football. And they feel almost a bit of a responsibility to use their uh, visibility, their celebrity almost, to drive uh, interest and more investment into this competition. And so far in the opening two rounds, we've seen more people turn up to games than ever before. A number of clubs have broken membership records and standalone attendance records. So it's it's all looking pretty good from here. The media and broadcasters have a crucial role in helping us shape the conversation all year round. And we're in a bit of a sporting blind spot for the year. The AFL and NRL men's are done and dusted. Rugby World Cup all but over. Wallabies crashed out early. Cricket World Cup just getting going. WBBL, AFLW, same sort of thing, just sort of getting moving. Are you surprised there's not more buzz 
around the Tillies. This cultural phenomenon, the sporting story of 2023. And if so, what does that tell us about the way the media has or has not changed its attitude? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, Australian sport media is its own big conversation uh, and the the different um, sort of political uh, or cultural agendas that some mastheads do or don't have and the kinds of competitions that they want to ramp up and the kinds of ones that they don't want to give any exposure to. But um, yeah, look, I'm, I'm a little bit surprised that there isn't more noise being made about the Matildas qualifiers. Um, but at, at the same time, I think it's very important strategically that Football Australia did bring the Matildas back to Australia for these games. Because you're right, we're in a bit of a blind spot, a bit of a Bermuda Triangle for for sport at the moment. The only really big national team thing that's currently happening is the Matildas. So to bring them back to to Australia, bringing them back to Perth uh, in front of all of those fans who haven't seen the Matildas play for a very long time, I think that was quite smart. And, you know, I did sort of um, observe this uh, over the course of the Women's World Cup as well, that there wasn't a huge amount of media spotlight on the tournament Um, up until really the week before it started. And then when the games were actually going and there was more content, there were players available, there were storylines everywhere, that's when you started to see all of the major mastheads get on board with the Tillies. So I expect something similar to happen uh, this week with the, the, the three games over in Perth. And hopefully if they're able to get three wins and there are some really cool stories to come out of that, we're going to see hopefully a, a pretty similar vibe to what we saw during the World Cup as well. Fowler cuts in field then tries to play a ball back again towards Caitlin Ford. Ford takes the ball in towards the end of the box. One-on-one with the keeper. Ford slides it home! And Australia take the lead! It's a two-way street too because the Matildas and Football Australia have a role to play in the conversation. I mean, the phone works both ways, doesn't it? And one critique of the Tillies during the World Cup, rightly or wrongly, was a closing off of the national team, the idea that they were in a bubble. And I think that's actually fair enough in a huge global tournament where on-field performance is key. This is a little different. They're, They're playing sides that they are much better than. So are they doing enough to make the team accessible? And I note the example of them putting up Ellie Carpenter for a press conference on Tuesday. That story is inevitably going to be about how she was bullied, really, online after a poor game in the semifinal. But if they'd made a a Fowler or a Kerr or a Caitlin Ford available, it's probably back page of the paper in every city. It's a positive story and it's driving the conversation. Where do you stand on whether or not the the team, the organisation could be doing more to facilitate that conversation. Yeah, it's tricky, isn't it? Because you need to take into account a lot of logistics around international windows. It's important for people to remember that these kinds of windows are actually really short. They're only about two weeks long from FIFA. And the amount of travel that some of these players have to do from halfway around the world is pretty extreme. Uh, So some of the players only arrived in Perth last night. They were only going to have a single training session together before they're out on the park for their first game against Iran. Um, And so it's really hard, I think, to organise or coordinate a media schedule around that. You really do have to just take whoever is available and and put them up for for people to chat to. To be honest, I wasn't on any social media throughout the World Cup. I don't think anyone really was in our team. Um, I don't really think or hear about the outside noise, just focus on myself. And for me, I'm just trying to be the best footballer I can be. So unfortunately, we haven't been able to hear from people like Sam Kerr or Caitlin Ford or Steph Catley. 
uh, like to the extent that we would perhaps want to. Um, But that's not, I don't think, uh, a sort of malicious um, kind of decision from Football Australia or the Matildas media people. I think it's just a matter of logistics and and trying to get all this stuff, um, all their ducks in a row. Because ultimately, this window is about performance. It's about the team winning these games because they have to, right? This is a qualifying tournament. This is serious competitive football and they need to be ready for that. So if the sacrifice is... Um, perhaps not as positive or as uh, widespread media exposure. I think the team internally would be okay with that if it means that they're going to be able to perform on the field. The action all gets underway a little later this week. We are so excited to have the Matildas back on Australian soil. Sam Lewis, thanks so much for your time. Thanks, Pat. Headlines. And have you heard about the dramas for NRL gun Dom Young? Drifts across to Caelan Thomas, straight past Whiten. He's over the 30, the 20. Pass away to Dom Young. Step past one easily. And he's over to score his 24th of the year, Dom Young. The former Knights, soon to be Roosters winger, has endured a horror health scare. He had travelled back to England to play in an international against Tonga, but was having this sinus pain and it was so bad he had to go to hospital. Turns out the sinus infection spread to his brain and surgery was required. Thankfully, he's on the mend. Needless to say, he won't be playing for England, but he'll have to stay there to recover and it should hurt his pre-season with the Chooks, but all that feels pretty low priority when we're talking about emergency surgery related to a man's brain. Hopefully he gets well soon. Bali, something going wrong, football identities. It's a classic off-season sporting Venn diagram. But this story actually has an AFL hero. Melbourne coach Simon Goodwin had to jump into action in Bali while surfing to save a man who was in danger of drowning. The thrill-seeker had jumped off a cliff into the ocean but dislocated his shoulder on impact. The demon's boss paddled over, picked him up on his surfboard and got him to a jet ski. It's a pretty handy feel-good story for the Ds as questions continue to swirl around Melbourne's culture. There's been some stuff over the last few weeks but I feel like this happens at most clubs. I'm certainly very bullish on the culture we've built over the last three or four years that it can withstand adversity like this and... Um, we're able to get in the top four again like we have the last three years. Rugby Union has had a shake-up. The game's international governing body has announced the next World Cup will feature an expanded 24 teams. They're also bringing in a Nations League comp. Starting in 2026, it'll have two divisions with 12 sides. The top division will have sides from the Six Nations, the Rugby Championship, probably Japan and Fiji competing every two years. And a result, 69 years in the making. Australia. The next division will have the best of the rest and there'll eventually be a promotion and relegation between the divisions. It should theoretically mean much more meaningful international rugby. I'm Patrick Stack. This is ABC Sport Daily, produced by Declan Byrne. Thanks to the Women's Super League, Paramount Plus, the Rugby World Cup, Channel 7 and Optus Sports for the extra audio used in this episode. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.